0: Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, civil rights and anti-discrimination laws. All right, Richard. So in a recent episode we did, we talked, of course, about the fight that's been going on over these religious freedom restoration acts in Indiana and Arkansas. So this week we're going to dig a little deeper into anti-discrimination laws more broadly considered. This is a topic you've written on a lot over the years. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's start here just to help us better understand the religious liberty angle. We didn't talk about this the last time that we had this conversation. These RFRA laws it's not all in the text. They set up a three-part balancing test by which the courts determine what is or isn't a permissible imposition on religious liberty. So just to explain those tests and how they're usually applied.
1: Uh, there's a three-part test and the first part asks the question as to whether or not there's a substantial burden that's imposed upon the, the exercise of religious liberty. Uh, the word substantial is a bit of a weasel word but it is possible to find relatively clear cases at opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, So if you're asking somebody who's an ordinary clerk in a uh, five and dime store to sell things to a gay customer, for example, they can't say my religious liberty makes it impossible for me to do that. On the other hand, if you're asking them to photograph a gay wedding of some sort or another, I think the answer is that that's an intimate personal service and the substantial burden prong would be satisfied. Then one has to deal with the question of whether or not there's a compelling state interest. And under the current law, there's a big difference. Of opinion about what that means. Uh, people on the left essentially argue getting rid of discrimination in any and all cases is, in fact, a compelling state interest. And so, therefore, when you want to make any of the arguments that have been made in the Indiana case, the Arkansas case, whatever other cases you talk about, uh, New Mexico case, you're necessarily going to lose. And I think that that's clearly wrong relative to what expectations should be. Um, the state interest in these particular circumstances, I think, should require you to show that there is really no other place at which you could get the service or that there's some real threat to social civil peace and order by allowing the refusal. This immediately gets you back into the common law conception, which says that if you're an ordinary actor in a competitive market and you have a religious liberty, uh, you essentially can exercise it. People now have the option to go to lots of other places to get the services they want. And In my recent defining idea columns, what I do is I show a rather vibrant market by just doing a simple Google search and under that search – finding out all of the places that cater to various kinds of interest groups. And then the third argument, which tends to drop out in these cases, is whether or not when you're trying to protect the compelling state interest, you do so by your least uh, intrusive means. If you believe any form of discrimination is, in fact, a uh, form of an evil that the government can protect, then... Any protection against it will do, and so the prohibition would be perfectly appropriate. If the other case is true, you never get to this prong because there's no essential uh, compelling state interest to do so. So you get two very rapidly different views, but the whole thing starts from the assumption uh, that discrimination in a competitive market is a wrong that the government is entitled to redress, and that gets one back to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and its public accommodation provisions. Okay, so when it comes to these
0: balancing tests, let me quote you to yourself here from your new piece at Defining Ideas. Quote, this conventional approach sets up a large and persistent clash between the anti-discrimination law and religious liberty. Much of that problem rightly disappears if we ask the right fundamental question. Why and when do we have any anti-discrimination law at all? End quote. All right. You wrote a great prompt for me, Richard. Answer that question.
1: Well, I think what one has to do is to go back to the history of anti-discrimination laws, and here we're confining ourselves to private sector-type situations. There's a long history which goes back to Sir Matthew Hale writing in the 17th century, and he says this only applies to those businesses that are, quote-unquote, affected with the public interest. And he did not mean by that any industry which was open to a business that was open to public customers. It meant is that they had somebody who had monopoly power over the operation so that there was nowhere else to go. And he was talking about various kinds of harbors, for example, limited supply, you have to dock your boat there, you can't dock it anywhere else. And he says if you've got that kind of a situation, whether because the crown has given you a monopoly or because there's no other harbor nearby, then you have to charge reasonable and moderate prices and you cannot exclude any customers from the business. That tradition carried itself through into the United States in a case called Munn v. Illinois. And basically through the last part of the 19th, and early part of the 20th century, what one tried to do was to figure out with these kinds of public utilities and common carriers what form of rate regulation was to be required. It could be restrictive enough to prevent monopoly profits, but it had to be generous enough to allow a risk-adjusted competitive return on capital. And most businesses, therefore, were out from underneath this. By the early 1930s, this view of the affected with the public interest was rejected. The key case was a case called Nebbia against New York in 1934. And what they decided was that the dairy business was affected with the public interest, and since it was so important, and therefore the government could set minimum prices. So the affected with the public interest test now becomes an excuse for imposing Monopoly-like re- regulations, rather than a reason for stopping monopoly behavior, a distinction which was essentially completely overlooked by uh, Justice Owen Roberts when he handed it. And when you get to the modern civil rights laws, it's a complicated situation because there are some 1964-type monopolies, and there's also a uniform practice of, shall we say, coercive force by state governments and by private violence, so that any new entrant into the South who wanted to serve people on a non-discriminatory basis would. Be basically find themselves either in jail on the one hand or dead on the street on the other. And under those circumstances, some strong federal government action is perfectly appropriate. I think the violence thing is gone today. The monopoly thing is weaker. And so when you start giving very broad definitions of public accommodations and you start to allow this three-part bargaining test to take over, what happens is You get the real kinds of bone-against-bone sorts of conflicts through the legal system that you have with the Civil Rights Commission, which is why it is, I think, that the older view, don't use government coercion in the absence of monopoly power, is in fact the more accurate one. Markets will provide for people, and you can give thousands of illustrations of how virtually every religious group, every sexual orientation is served by some fragment, some segment of the competitive market. So is it fair
0: to say, given that characterization, that it is probably a mistake to extrapolate too hastily from the Jim Crow example? Here's what I mean by this because of precisely what you just said, that it wasn't just the legal strictures. It was the fact that you couldn't – competition could not break down these barriers because the competition wasn't really allowed in because of the, the potential threat. Of violence. So is that – does that render it a mistake? You do hear these comparisons now with these religious freedom laws that it's it's roughly the equivalent, not in its effect certainly, but that there's no meaningful distinction between the rationale that I can turn somebody away because of their sexual orientation and I can turn somebody away because of their
1: race. Well, look, I, I think in effect the answer is there is that parallel and if there's a competitive market in both places, um, it's just fine. One has to understand what it means to be able to turn somebody away because of their race. Oftentimes that's translated by uh, incautiously into meaning why people can refuse to serve black people. But it also means that white people can start affirmative action programs, black people can decide to serve only black people, uh, everybody could decide to serve everybody, and so forth. So it turns out this is not a one-sided tale, a privilege given to one group and denied to another. And what happens is if you have open, empty, open entry and lots of variations, you will see websites like Black Bride. Uh, if you really took the anti-discrimination law seriously and assumed that signaling and advertisement were part of it, uh, then in effect they should shut this place down. So what has happened in the United States is worse than having no, uh, That under the current situation, is far worse than having no anti-discrimination law. We have a two-tiered law. Those people which are protected groups essentially have perfect freedom of association. Those people who are not protected groups are subject to microscopic examination for the slightest hint of discrimination. So in the various situations here, you know, you can sue today a store for the way in which it organizes its On the grounds that they underrepresent people of a certain group, and so therefore they're guilty of implicit stereotyping or racial discrimination. And I think it's extremely difficult to use the notion of compelling state interest so that one side of the equation is always going to be attacked and the other side of the equation is always going to be protected. Remember, we have right now a black caucus in the Senate. Uh, If you want to talk about a racial identification, that's it. I think it's perfectly fine for these folks to get together, but I don't think it's fine for them to say that anybody else who just Agrees with them doesn't have similar privileges of association. Now,
0: how about the the other side of this on the on the gay marriage piece, Richard? Because uh, Adam Liptak, who's a legal writer for the New York Times, he had a piece recently pointing out that what's conventionally referred to as as big law, the, the biggest most powerful law firms. They – when it comes to social sanctions, they don't want to touch any legal arguments against same-sex marriage with a 10-foot pole because of the social sanction that accompanies it in the sort of social universe that they occupy. Should we regard that as, hey, this is the, this is the cultural dynamic sorting it out and that's to be regarded as a good thing? Or is it some sort of systemic breakdown that one side of the argument is essentially getting short shrift because of the opprobrium it generates in, in some circles?
1: Well, I'm actually very uncomfortable with the way in which this thing is broken out. The one exception to this is Chuck Cooper, who has written on this and argued one of the Prop 8 cases. And he says, I run a small firm. I don't have to worry about all of this stuff. Look, I perfectly well understand why firms are are somewhat uneasy about this kind of thing. And it just shows you how powerful the social sanctions are. And when they're that powerful, you don't need legal sanctions. But on the other hand, there's a vast difference between saying that the Constitution requires that you recognize gay marriage and saying in effect that I think it's a good social idea and what I find very untru- very troublesome about the whole situation is that anybody who makes the constitutional argument that in 1868 or indeed today a gay marriage is just not part of the equal protection clause is now being branded as a bigot because that's exactly the term that Adam Liptak used to describe the way in which law firms think they would be uh, perceived and it's very bad for a social dialogue for one side of an argument to be able to claim bigotry on the other, and then for the other side to try to figure out how they climb out of that deep hole. And, you know, Chuck Cooper is a perfect example. I mean, he's argued one way, and he sponsored a very fancy um, wedding for his uh, stepdaughter, who's a lesbian. I mean, it seems to me perfectly consistent that you can do both of these things. And I think, in effect, that people have to recognize that. And what troubles me... (laughs) is I think there's a lot of piling on which is taking place. It's on this issue. It was on Hobby Lobby. It was on some of the voting rights issues and so forth. What one has to do is to understand that differences of opinion are, as a matter of social norms, something that require a degree of civility. And I don't see that. I think that norm is eroding. And when that happens is you start getting monolithic positions. And it's like, these guys now have the kind of social monopoly power, which actually does attract, to my mind, some degree of concern. I think that the movement, when it starts to act in this particular fashion, um, basically is trying to make sure that nobody else is allowed to speak. And, you know, I will speak against it on these particular issues. It's not that I have any quarrel about gay marriage. In fact, quite the opposite. Freedom of association is the appropriate norm. But the anti-discrimination norm is antithetical to freedom of association. And in a competitive market, I think The freedom of association norm means that the claims for anti-discrimination law based on anything pretty much in competitive markets ought to be rejected. We are going to be dealing,
0: are we not, with issues that go beyond just these religious liberty concerns when it comes to gay marriage. There was was a piece in the New York Times a few days ago about the fact that you have issues coming up with ultra-Orthodox Jewish men on airplanes who – don't want to sit next to women, and, it, and the story details how uh, some of the women involved were sort of deferential and were were happy to move, and others, you know, viewed it as a as a political stance that that they should take and that found it offensive. Um, how are the, are these the sorts of things that we can we can rely on sort of social norms to sort out, or are these inevitably going to be inviting legal cases and legislation too?
1: Well, look, I do think you should be able to work these things out by a combination of social norms and by price mechanisms. The problem is it only takes one angry person to bring yourself into litigation, at which point all the weaker sanctions can be cast aside. And so there is the question of how you handle it. The first thing to note about the uh, situation is that the rabbinical group has come together and has decided if you're sitting next to a random woman on an airplane and there's no sexual intent of any form, it's perfectly okay. even if occasionally you bump while sharing the armrest. And, you know, I would think for most people that would put an end to the issue. And I would assume that the religious groups would probably want to push that because they don't want to have themselves singled out for this kind of abuse. Otherwise, I think swapping is fine if somebody wants to do it. Um, and if they don't want to do it, my sympathies generally are with the women, because under these circumstances, I think when you're a common carrier, uh, fungibility is the order of the day. And if you now make special demands on a system against everybody else who's done nothing wrong, I think you're the one who has to bear the brunt of it. One of the things that you could do if you wanted a price mechanism in there is to say for anybody who's ultra orthodox, you want this kind of protection, what we we will do is we will give it to you but we're going to charge you an extra $50 and if we have to displace any woman she's going to be able to get that particular money or we'll put it in a fund in order to reduce the cost for everybody else associated with the flight or give free drinks or something of that. Uh, if you put a price signal in there it will distinguish between the true believers on the one hand and the people who are merely super sensitive on the other and it might work. There might be a lot of resistance to it so I'm not basically mandating it <clears throat> but I believe there has to be a low level way which to do it. Much of this takes place on El Al, which is, of course, a Jewish airline devoted to Jewish customers. And I would assume that their norms would be somewhat different from those of other kinds of airlines where the frequency of this issue is much lower. And I would think that within that kind of an environment, they should be able to work this thing out uh, either individually or collaboratively or with some kind of a general policy, either by the rabbinate or by everybody else. But it does sort of point down that running a common carrier is more difficult than you sometimes think, uh, because if it turns out that the basic pattern is that passive passengers do nothing, and then you start getting people on there who have you know big overcoats and have long beards or whatever it is that may create certain kinds of uneasiness, running one of these things will become much more difficult. And I think it has actually been reported that the number of incidents of near violence and violence on airplanes has actually trended upward in recent years which is of course a very ominous side because 99.9% of the travelers and then some have no desire to be near any of this stuff and if it does happen on an airplane in close proximity with other individuals it could lead to very dangerous type situations so I do think some serious response should be about this and my guess is that all the airlines are reviewing their policy and when they start coming up with things they've got the right set of incentives and I would tend to think that they would do a better job of regulating. Violating this than some government bureaucrat coming in claiming that this is a civil rights violation. So,
0: Richard, final question here. A question, I guess, about tradeoffs and about political prudence. <laughs> um, you talked about extraordinary measures being necessary during the time of the Civil Rights Act and the fact that those measures have down the line birthed probably some policies that are probably overbroad for a less charged era and – By the same token, you've said before that you're sympathetic to the cause of gay marriage but also to people who want the religious liberty protections. How would you respond to someone who said, you know what, Richard? American politics, American culture, it it isn't that precise. You want to overcome the systematic racial bias, you're going to have to live with these overwrought racially conscious laws from there on out. If you want to legalize gay marriage, you're going to normalize it to the point where even the slightest resistance to the sensibility – is anathema. I guess. I guess what I'm asking is, do you have confidence as a cultural matter that Americans can manage these kind of very nuanced classical liberal? equilibriums that you're recommending.
1: Well, I mean, remember, the sentiment publicly on gay marriage is quite divided, even though the uh, intelligentsia are very strongly in favor of recognizing it. But the question of whether or not you could make this stick depends upon whether or not you could give a clear distinction. And I think it's perfectly clear that you can say voluntary arrangements go forward, coerced arrangements don't go forward in all of the trades which are affected here. I don't think anybody on the religious side actually wants to say that by virtue of my religious beliefs, I'm going to ban gay marriage. At least if they do so, I think that they should be rejected um, because I do think that these options are very, very important. And I think if the line is clear enough, then what we have to do is to say this is the acceptable social um, compromise. You can run your own lives as you see fit, but you can't run the lives of other individuals. The argument is commonly made that when you go into business, you shed all of your religious beliefs. The constant mantra on the left, at least politically, is that free exercise of religion covers worship and ceremonies and nothing more. And I think that that's wrong. I think free exercise of religion means leading your religious life in all sorts of other areas and the freedom is subject to the same restraints that any other kind of freedom is subject to. The free exercise of my religion doesn't allow me to use your child for my sacrifice or or to beat anybody else up. And what happens is if you treat religious freedom as a subset of general freedom, it turns out that you don't have religious people constantly claiming for privilege from the general kinds of laws, which means that these things ought to be more easily enforced. Um, Let me just say it the other way. If it turns out there's a very strong social consensus that various kinds of discrimination are wrong, that's a very good reason for not enforcing them through the law because there's no reason at this particular point to coerce one-tenth of one percent into certain kinds of behaviors that they find really dangerous. Other people can find ways to make their accommodations. When I wrote my book on forbidden grounds, I said, look, the use of force is rather different. If there's one person out of a thousand who says, I'm free to use force, everybody else is at risk. If there's one person out of a thousand who says, I do not wish to make gay wedding cakes, nobody's at risk. And when you read some of these overwrought statements, like from the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, uh, that refusing to uh, bake a wedding case is tantamount to the Holocaust, that seems to me to be the kind of hyperbole which Deserves the most strong condemnation possible. No one should ever uh, basically confuse the use of brutal force against innocent people with the refusal to provide religious services in an otherwise competitive market.
0: All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting defining ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.